Hello and welcome to episode 260 of the Waters Waveland podcast. I'm your host, Weishan, and I have Tony with me today. Hey, T, how's it hanging? Doing well. Uh, it's hanging well. Um, I got a TV show recommendation for you and for our audience. Ooh, what okay. is it? It's a show that's been around for several years now. I've never heard anybody talk about it okay and so it's on hbo max i don't even know if you get that out there in hong kong but or malaysia wherever you're at where in the world is way and i never really know um um but so i'd never heard anybody talk about this show and i'd never even seen it like I, i've had hbo max for however long it's been out for and i've never seen it you know hey watch the show or whatever uh and i was at a bar and this bartender's talking to another guy and i just happened to overhear it and he brings up the show called Doom Patrol. Have you ever heard of it? Oh. It's a DC uh, comic book uh, franchise thing. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that's been on my list because it has Matt Bomer in it. I don't know who that is. It, it's got Brendan Fraser in it, who's freaking awesome in it. But uh, Wait, let me let me quickly check. I'm I'm quite sure it has Matt Bomer in it. <laughs> I wouldn't know who Matt Bomer was. So it might, but I. He's know. a real dreamboat. He might be the guy that uh, that is kind of masked up, but yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Which is so, a shame, a real shame. <laughs> this show is, it's it's just phenomenal. So I'm just through the first season, so it's like already like I think it's season three or season four it's into. Um, but again, I've never heard anybody talk about this, and I'm not a comic book guy. Like I like I've watched all the Marvel films and stuff like that, but I don't, you know, th- those aren't my kind of movies. Like. Alice really likes those kind of those kind of movies. Um, as do I. But the yes, I see you. Um, but I I heard uh, this guy. He's like, he's like, you don't understand. It's like it's not like a it's not like a, a superhero movie. It's like this anti superhero. Like none of them want to be superheroes. They're just forced in this situation, and like they're like each episode. Like I'm laughing. I'm crying. I'm just like it's it's great writing. Episode nine of season one one of the finest episodes of television I've ever watched. Uh, so yeah, you gotta go just check it out. I don't know if my login will work in Hong Kong, but I'll give you my login uh, to HBO Max if you don't have it. I've tried, it doesn't work. <laughs> nah. yeah. We gotta figure out a way to go watch it. And the listeners out there should go check it out. Definitely good. Yeah, that's why I haven't watched, well, I'm sure there are other ways to get it. And But I haven't watched Euph- Euphoria either. And I know ah, that's, that's really on my list of uh, yeah shows to watch. But yeah, Doom Patrol has been on my list because I follow Matt Bomer on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, have loved him since White Collar. Uh, unfortunately, he doesn't swing for the team that I want him to swing for, but it's it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well that's also true in uh this uh in this uh in this show as well. Oh, so. <laughs> <damn>. <laughs> um but no I highly highly recommend it. So good. Anyway, who we got on the podcast for today, <laughs> Uh this week uh we have Stephen Richardson. He's the head of Asia Pacific and senior vice president of financial markets at Fireblocks. Uh Fireblocks is a digital asset security platform so i got him on we (laughs) (laughs) my favorite Um, subject (laughs) yeah your favorite i just like uh, you know choosing uh topics that you hate poke the bear exactly poke the bear yeah anyway though i'm sure our listeners will love it so yeah sorry yeah we we covered um you know uh, topics like uh, how traditional custodians like BNY Mellon and, you know, what uh, Senate Chart 
Standard Chartered and Northern Trust is doing with Zodia, um, how Fireblocks is working with them, and some of the institutional great tools that are still missing from you know this today's digital asset toolkit. Um, so yeah, I hope you enjoy it. And and we have a, a DLT uh, podcast for you next week too. I hear so yeah, it's uh, it'll, it'll be good. We, we we got the crypto covered for you for a while anyway. <laughs> Well, that, what, that's it. what the podcast is for, isn't it? Exactly, so, exactly. I'm, mm. I'm a fan. Let's do it. <laughs> Enjoy. Okay, and today we have Stephen Richardson. He's the head of APAC and senior vice president of financial markets at Fireblocks. Hey, Stephen, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Good to have you. Well, thanks thanks for joining us again. And I just want to maybe get you to, to start with, um, if you could give our audience uh, an overview of Fireblocks and how you guys help custodians and firms self-manage ownership of assets. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Um, so Fireblocks is a digital asset platform. Uh, we're a technology provider that really enables uh, leading financial institutions as well as folks in the digitally native space and folks operating within Web3 uh, to really manage uh, private key infrastructure and all the activities that go around that. So Fireblocks is not a custodian ourselves. We're not a financial entity. Uh, we don't trade. We don't uh, hold assets on behalf of customers. But really, we're the technology leg that's needed to basically uh, operate in the digital asset space. And I think what's slightly different about the way we look at Fireblocks is we're solely focused on being that technology provider, right? We we think uh, we live, eat, and breathe basically cybersecurity and, and blockchain security, and I think that helps us really uh, create you know technical products that enable our customers to go to market safely and efficiently uh, in, in digital assets. So uh, we've been around for almost four years now. Um, you know, we started with uh, our founders from Tel Aviv, uh, Michael Adan and Pavel. Uh, and we've now grown to over 600 employees globally, uh, servicing over 1,400 clients across the globe. Wow, that's that's quite a bit. Um, if you <laughs> could, <laughs> sorry, if you could actually give an example of how you guys are the, uh, I guess, the foundational blocks, uh, and and as you mentioned, you guys are not custodians yourselves, but you are that technology. You you are really providing that technology there, and uh, you know overlaying it with the cybersecurity, basically providing that technical product for custodians and other firms, you know, to have that, to manage their private keys. Um, if you could give us a couple of examples of how Fireblocks does that, that would be great. Yeah, so so uh, an example is someone like uh, Bank of New York Mellon, right? Um, they want approval um, from the Fed and, and from various regulators in the United States. Uh, to offer custody of digital assets, you know, for things like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, you know, from our perspective, Bank of New York Mellon is the financial entity. They've been a large custodial bank. They have the expertise around risk management, operational management, and all those different pieces, as well as balance sheet, right? So they're well positioned to act as a digital asset custodian uh, in this space. But what we've added is really the private key management, right? The complexity of really how you manage the private key, which basically creates or allows access to all the assets you have on chain, right? If that private key is, is compromised, 
then in essence, all the assets that you own are also compromised, right? And, and so our technology stack provides what we call multi-party computation. Uh, we can talk a little bit about that, but that's really an algorithm that's used or, or a protocol that's utilized to basically manage uh, the security around the private key. Uh, and then we've built like a broader set of technology stacks. So things like policy engines, uh, things like the right governance, automated governance and controls, uh, things like the right integrations into uh, technology providers like Chainalysis and Elliptic, which do uh, AML, like on-chain monitoring around digital asset transactions. We've built this broader technology stack such that, you know, any party, whether that's someone like BNY Mellon or Revolut, or you know, uh, others around the globe uh, can basically interact safely and efficiently with digital assets. Um, we also have things such as our payments product, which uh, basically enables orchestration of payments that folks like FIS and, and Checkout.com are using. We have tokenization capabilities that we can talk about a little bit more that folks like ANZ Bank in, in Australia are using. And basically we're providing all, all of these different components on top of the wallet infrastructure to basically allow you know, financial institutions, exchanges and others to basically offer a holistic set of, uh, of products to their clients. Okay, I guess for the uninitiated, Maybe explain yeah. what MPC is and how that works to, you know, um, and in, in terms of how it provides additional security um, and in what you offer. Yeah, so there, there really are two, let's say, um, you know, algorithms or protocols that are used today to, to manage digital assets, right? The first is multisig. Um, and multisig was really built for, for things like Bitcoin. Right uh, and Bitcoin custody. If you think about the genesis of multisig and kind of where it started, uh, you know Mt. Gox and all of those. The, the general basis was around Bitcoin, right? Um, if you use multisig for things like Ethereum, actually you have to use smart contracts and, and other things to really manage through uh, securing the private key around all these different assets. So multisig has been around for a period of time. Uh, and that was, let's call it the de facto private key infrastructure. The problem with multisig was, um, you know, you had these key shares, right, that were distributed. But in essence, for you to basically sign a transaction, you had to bring those key shares together to sign what was called the private key, right? That private key basically allows you to sign a transaction and broadcast it to the blockchain. Um, now, if that private key is compromised, that in essence gives a malicious actor basically full rights over the assets that are being guarded behind that private key, right? For simplicity's sake. And so this private key is very fundamentally important. Now, in cybersecurity, there's this concept of something called a single point of compromise, right? It's, uh, it's an area in which a malicious actor or someone that has bad intent would focus their attention or their effort in order to compromise. And in cybersecurity, you want to reduce the number of what we call single points of compromise, right? You want to kind of uh, mitigate the risk around that. Now, this concept of the private key coming together represents a single point of compromise, right? If you basically understand when these different key shares would be used and when this signing transaction is going to occur and this private key will come together, you as a malicious actor would focus your attention on basically overpowering or compromising you know, the point in which this private key is generated or is being utilized and basically taking over the wallet, 
right? That was the broader risk. Now, there were a lot of mitigants around that where there were things such as making sure that the key shares were offline, so putting them in the HSM or putting them completely offline and creating all these operational processes to basically mitigate the risk of this private key getting compromised. But what that did was really slow down the process of operating in blockchain, right? If you had to go to a vault, you know, in a mountain, right? And then you had to go through a very complicated operational process to assemble this private key or get into a tent where there were no ability for radio waves or, you know, different things to basically compromise that private key. You couldn't actually move assets on chain very quickly, right? It would take you... 24 hours, 48 hours, three hours to basically process a transaction. And if you think about financial markets and the concept of blockchain, assets need to move, right? In order for value to be derived, assets should be moving, transactions should be occurring, right? And so going through this really tedious process to basically mitigate this single point of compromise represented a big problem, right? So that's multi-sig, that's the issues with multi-sig. Now, just by sorry, just just to yeah, interrupt ahead. you there, um, just by wonder how difficult if if I were a threat actor and I wanted to get access to, I mean, and I was monitoring that single point of compromise, waiting for that that those keys to come together. Um, how difficult is that to do? Look, uh, no one says it's easy, right? But you have to think that there are nation state actors like the Lazarus Group, right, from North Korea that have focused all their attention on methods and mechanisms to really compromise organizations. And I'll talk about like what we do at our, on our side around that as well, but you have phishing attacks, you have impersonations, you have um, deposit address. There are all these things around basically this interaction of a transaction on chain in addition to the compromise of the private key, right? The one other thing that's slightly poor around multisig is it's an on-chain protocol, right? So basically you actually see the number of key shares that are required to basically sign the key, right? To, to sign the private key. So if it's three of three or five of five, that is on chain. You know that when you're interacting with that wallet, which means if I'm a malicious actor and I see a wallet with a hundred million dollars worth of assets or a billion dollars worth of assets, and I can tell it's, you know, a three of three signing structure or a five of five signing structure, then I think to myself, if I can understand who's behind that wallet, right, and then I can understand the number of key shares, then I know for the number of things or different attack points I'm looking for within an organization to compromise, right? And so, again, nothing in cybersecurity, I think, is like completely easy, right? But there are a lot of really bad people, right, that are highly specialized that are thinking about ways to, to, to enable that type of compromise. Okay, so then coming to MPC, how is that different to multi-sig? Yeah, so so MPC is different in a few ways. One, it's not on chain, right? So it's it's on something called the elliptic curve, uh, which means that it doesn't one, it doesn't show the key schema, right? Like it doesn't show how many key shares are involved in the process of, of signing. So it could be three of three, it could be five of five. You can't tell. Um, the second thing that's different about uh, multi-party computation um, is that never at any point, not during the genesis and generation of the private key and the wallet infrastructure, or at the signing of transactions related to uh, broadcasting a transaction on chain, does the private key ever come together, right? It utilizes zero knowledge proofs, it utilizes 
you know, a lot of different uh, mathematical computations, stuff that's beyond my pay grade, but really sits with our crypto uh, researchers on the Firebox side, but basically to compute a transaction and sign what's called the public, right? Now, because of that, that represents a point, like a zero compromise situation or a zero point of, uh, uh, no single point of compromise uh, situation, right? Because the private key doesn't get them together. Each of the key shards compute the transaction on their own. And so that means in order to compromise the system, you need to compromise all the key shards that are involved in the computation of that transaction. Whether it's three of three or five of five, you have to compromise all of those key shares, not just a single private key. Now, that isn't impossible, right? It's something that can be done, but it's harder, right? And I, I like an MPC to, you know, this idea that, you know, you have gold, right? And if you have gold, you don't want to create a single point of compromise. You might spread the gold across a lot of rooms, right? But if I was, you know, a king with a lot of gold, I would create a castle. I would put it with a really high wall. I would put it on a mountain. I would create a moat around it. I'd put crocodiles and snakes in it. And I'd put archers on the top. Right. I make it really, really quite difficult for you to you know, get to that goal. It's not impossible, but it's much more difficult. And so when you're a malicious actor, you actually need to then calculate how much effort is required to then compromise that wallet compared to maybe another wallet that's using multisig or isn't using kind of all the different security apparatus that we put around the firebox infrastructure. So MPC represents one aspect of that security infrastructure. There are other things that we do at Fireblock, such as, you know, uh, a governance and policy engine, right, in terms of who can interact with the wallet infrastructure. There are things we do, such as putting all of the sensitive information, like not only the key shares and, and, and the kind of the algorithm and, and computation itself, but also like the policy engine and all these other sensitive components inside of hardware. And again, it just makes the barrier for really compromising assets uh, for our particular client of fireboxes uh, much more difficult. Okay, so earlier you mentioned that you are working with, you know, custodians like BNY Mellon. I know that you're also working with Zodiac Custody, which is um, the uh, the crypto custody platform that Senate Chartered and Northern Trust are working with, right? Um, could you give me an example of how you are supporting them and how that's different to how you're supporting other, I guess, um, newer custodians you know that are coming to the market that uh, specifically are serving servicing digital assets whether they be crypto or other tokenized assets look i, I think the benefit of what we do at fireblocks is the technology is the same whether you're bny melon or you're a two-person hedge fund shop right and i think that's the power of what we we we, we provide at, at firebox as a, as a technology provider right we think the risks are very similar the risk of operating on chain is very similar uh whether you're a small shop or a big shop and and i would argue one would argue that if you're a small shop trying to uh raise capital and prove a point right and you have a hack right uh that spells the end of what you're doing uh within digital assets or from a business perspective um, now it's significant that BNY, um, you know, manages their assets and manages everything well, right? But I don't think there's any less risk to like, like a business perspective for you know someone that's small and someone that's big, right? We want to provide the same high-level enterprise infrastructure. So for someone like BNY, where we you know obviously have 
teams of folks that are, are working with them to making sure that they meet the regulatory requirements that they have as a large bank, right? And, and same with, you know, any of the other large, you know, banking providers that are highly regulated uh, that we operate with. Um, and I think that's fundamentally maybe where you see a lot of the differences from the technology pro pro approach. But there are other things we do, like we've, you know, in the case of Standard Charter Zodia, we enabled our network right within the Firebox ecosystem to be connected to, to the Zodia uh, infrastructure, right? And it makes it easier for, you know, large institutional clients to be able to settle assets between assets that are held in a regulated custodian and maybe some assets that they're holding themselves within the Fireblock self-custodial platform. So there are different use cases that are, are being executed, you know, across the financial markets ecosystem. And, and what we do at Fireblocks is try to find, you know, where our technology can make the most impact and, and then enable that there. Okay. So, I mean, in the past couple of years, actually, I mean, institutional grade tools in this crypto slash digital asset market, you know, have really uh, come up a little bit more, right? But there mm -hmm. are still some that are missing, right? That hinder, that still hinder other institutional firms from getting more involved, um, especially since news of, uh, you know, late last year, you know, with FTX's collapse uh, and other, you know, relevant uh, events, market events that happen. Um, you know, what are some of the tools that are still missing in, in your opinion? Yeah, so I think it's not necessarily technology tools per se, right? I think, you know, if you look at the space, I've been in the space since uh, 20, late 2016, 2017, um, you didn't really have tools around like self-custodial wallet infrastructure, right? Like you had to build everything yourself, right? And that was, you know, seen as one of the biggest like barriers. And then you have folks like Fireblocks and other players that come in. Um, having the right AML and KYC compliance tools was another struggle, right? And you've seen players like, uh, you know, Chainalysis, Elliptic, CypherTrace, and others come into the market and provide that tooling. Um, some of the issues you're seeing across the board, I think, are around what we call settlement infrastructure, right? How do you manage settlement between counterparties in a, in a real way, right? Um, how do you mitigate risk around that settlement and, and, and settlement default, right? Because a lot of what you saw uh, in the ecosystem was, was, you know, basically, you know, counterparties interacting with each other, but not necessarily settling uh, in efficient mechanisms. And when I say inefficient mechanisms, I mean, because there's really no credit, like the same way we see credit in the traditional financial services space, right? Uh, you can go to the open markets and, and enable credit. You can go to central banks and get credit, right? Because there's no real credit in the digital asset space, settlement becomes a very big deal and settlement default becomes a very big deal. And so that was, I think, one real big gap that we saw post FTX. And, you know, providers like Fireblocks and others are really trying to mitigate that problem. You know, we're looking at mitigating it, you know, by enabling you know, folks to be able to have better visibility into the assets of counterparties that they're interacting with and be able to lock and hold those assets in a very efficient way, right? We're thinking about, well, how can we solve this from a technological perspective rather than from, let's say, adding a custodian or, you know, another, you know, entity into this ecosystem or equation that folks need to solve for and manage counterparty risk against. And so I think you're going to start to see a lot of different solutions that, you know, basically look at the settlement problem 
um, I think you're starting to see technology around on-chain atomic swaps and the real question around whether or not you can enable real DVP in real time um, across, you know, by utilizing atomic swaps. And this idea of cross-chain bridges, right? We know there's not going to be any consensus in terms of which layer ones or blockchain protocols folks are going to use. Maybe they use Solana, maybe they use Ethereum, maybe they operate on Algorand or Hedera or any of these other different blockchains. And so how you move assets in and out and between those different blockchains for the purposes of settlement will really be an important thing to solve. So these cross-chain bridges and the technology around that, I think is becoming really interesting and, and is something to think about. And then the last piece is around DeFi, right? How can you solve things algorithmically, right? How can you leverage smart contracts and, and programming as a basis of mitigating risk around settlement counterparties. If you look at what happened, you know, with folks like BlockFi and Celsius and, and others, right? And you look at what happened in, you know, the uh, decentralized or uh, application space between like lenders and things, you'll see like default rates were very different, right? The technology doesn't care if you're one client with $100 million or one client with $10,000. It treats your wallet and treats you the same. The algorithm treats you the same. And so a lot of the risk you saw in the digital ecosystem was because of this concept of shadow credit, right? You're a big client. I want your business. I'm going to give you lower collateralization rates, or I'm going to allow you to borrow uncollateralized. And so when the default happens in the system, that has ripple effects. We didn't see that type of thing happen in the decentralized application space. And so there's more and more thought about how useful and, and how much utility will these type of dApps have. And, and that type of infrastructure as it gets built out will be really important to, I think, the continuing evolution of the space. Okay, so you mentioned, uh, so going just a, a quick question back on settlement infrastructure and that the industry saw a big gap post FTX. If you could give me a practical example of, you know, how was, uh, I mean, basically explaining how settlement infrastructure was an issue, um, you know, compared to the traditional wall. I mentioned you, you did mention credit back uh, earlier, but if you could give an example of how, yeah, it was an issue. Yeah, let, let, let's give let's kind of level set right. In in traditional markets, you have things called prime brokers, right? They allow you know J.P. Morgan and others, right? They have prime brokerage, right? They're their interface. They're providing credit to hedge funds and asset managers and others to be able to buy and sell uh, different real assets, right? Basically, you trade, you give up your trade to this prime broker. There's something called credit intermediation, right? Where they stand in on your behalf and they settle the trades between counterparties, okay? This credit is built into traditional finance, right? And so you really don't worry about the risk of default at the level of the hedge fund, right? You worry about the risk of default at the bank level. Right. And, and a good example of this is, you know, Archegos and Bill Wang. Right. They, there was 20 billion dollars worth of loss. Right. Obviously, Bill Wang needed to pay, you know, and, you know, should pay back that funds. But the banks were on the hook for settlement. That's why there was a three billion dollar loss at Credit Suisse. Right. At the end of the day, credit, the, the prime broker needs to settle that trade. OK, it's already been executed. They're on the hook for settling it. In digital assets, that doesn't exist. There's no prime broker. There's no credit. Everything is bilateral. Okay. So when you enter into a trade with another counterparty, let's say for simple for simplicity's sake, you're buying a million dollars worth of Ethereum. Okay. There's 
a million dollars that needs to be delivered to one counterparty, and there's some quantity of Ethereum that needs to be delivered back to the other counterparty. Okay. Now, at the end of the day, the way that a lot of the digital ecosystem worked was they settle bilaterally. So, in essence, I would say, okay, I'm going to need to buy a million dollars of Ethereum for you. I'm going to send you the million dollars first. You send me the Ethereum later. Okay. In the case of lending, I'm going to post some level of collateral with you first. You give me the assets later. Now, the issue around, let's use the simplified trading basis is what if I send you the million dollars, but I don't know on the other hand that you have the Ethereum to deliver back to me. Now I've taken counterparty risk to you, right? And mm -hmm. so in essence, I sent you a million dollars. You sent me nothing back. If you never choose to send me any Ethereum back, I've lost a million dollars. Now, from a trading bank trading perspective is, you know, hedge fund A, hedge fund B, right? They, they give the trade, they give up the trade to their banks, their banks settle that and the funds go through and the banks are, are, are on the risk for some level of default, right? But in the crypto native space, it's bilateral. So that doesn't happen. And so how do you solve that problem of dealing with it, a counterparty either you don't know or in the, in the space where now credit or that ability to extend leverage to another counterparty has decreased that you have some semblance of managing that process. And so we're building tools like that, right? Which says, okay, I'm entering into a trade with counterparty A and B. I know that Fireblocks is my you know, wallet infrastructure system. I would allow counterparty A to understand when I've locked up the asset to be delivered to counterparty B, vice versa for counterparty B to counterparty A. It's not necessarily us standing in and providing credit, but it's a technological solution that really mitigates a lot of the risk between operating in this space, right? So those are the kind of things that are like, uh, you know, real life example and gaps that we're seeing today that now in the wake of, you know, FTX, in the wake of three arrows, in the wake of what we've seen from, you know, multiple different providers in the space, managing counterparty risk and credit, right? And managing settlement risk is becoming a bigger deal to, to solve. Okay, okay. And I guess if we could move on to the theme of interoperability, so like I think within the capital markets, interoperability and I guess harmonization of tech infrastructure has been a, an important conversation in yeah, the past couple of years. Um, Technically, this has been uh, more focused to, you know, the existing uh, traditional assets, yeah. right? But as they start to, I guess, delve into the digital asset space more, whether that be in the form of crypto uh, or other digital assets, maybe perhaps even tokenization of some securities, for example, uh, how can how can firms how can capital market firms actually better enable that that interoperability and harmonization? What needs to happen there? Yeah, I mean that that's that's a great question. I, so you know, part of my job is working with banks globally around you know their efforts in in digital assets. Uh, and I'll use an antidote. You know, I was talking to a large scale bank, uh, to a very large bank, and they they were talking about how when they're thinking about tokenizing securities or other real assets, uh, they you know recognize how many different systems there are. Right. And, you know, naming conventions there are for the same asset. So they give me an example that a single security has something like 120 plus codes that are used across the bank for the same asset, the same single asset. Um, and that's because there's so many different systems and so many different ways that those systems are used across the bank 
that in essence, they run into this huge problem of harmonizing how one singular asset should be called across the bank. Because in essence, in one unit, it's called, you know, it has these five different identifiers, but then in another unit for the same asset, it has these 10 different identifiers, which is like a crazy, crazy concept to me, right? Like BTC is BTC, Ethereum is Ethereum, right? It's like the, the idea that that would be so many different things, I think is, is kind of like uh, something that probably, you know, as we think about this, you know, tech innovation lens, uh, it's quite hard to rationalize. The challenge that a lot of folks have is, you know, they're operating within legacy infrastructure that people are piecing together. I, I came from Accenture and you would, you know, see how many digital transformation projects are happening across large financial institutions. What's a digital transformation project? A digital transformation project is just look at all the systems that we have at the bank and let's figure out which ones we want to get rid of and which ones we want to upgrade and how we tie and tick them all together to make them work. And let's spend like a lot of money to do this uh, and five years, right? That's like usually how, you know, digital transformation projects go. You make a lot of money as a consultant. It's phenomenal, right? Um, you know, and, you know, for me, I, I look at it and I, I kind of laugh, right? You have an opportunity in digital assets to start net new, right? We believe, or I believe, that real assets will come on chain over the next 10 plus years. Most real assets will come on chain. If you believe in that thesis that bonds, private placement, uh, funds, uh, fiat currency, all these different things, real estate will come on chain, then you actually have the ability to say, I can think rationally about how I operate within this new digital ecosystem. And there's always this decision that needs to be made between you know, all the different units at the bank and the financial services institution that are running different projects in parallel. And the best example is you'll have the security services division that's doing custody generally go out to the market first around, you know, what they want to do in the market, like baseline custody, whether around real assets or, you know, crypto native assets, they're shooting one direction. Then you have the private wealth group that's shooting in another direction and the market capital markets group that's in another direction, all with different use cases. Right. And what you tend to find is that because folks aren't thinking rationally around, can I find a singular platform that one allows me to custody my assets securely? Right. In a way that will pass OPSEC and security and DevOps. Right. With some level of purpose. But two, as we know, new and unique use cases come to market, whether that's tokenization, whether that's operating in DeFi whether that's operating within Web3 and NFTs, my wallet capabilities will have to be able to enable these different use cases that sit on top, right? Or at least allow plugins in a seamless way to the base infrastructure that I have. We see that being missed a lot, right? So what you actually start to see is the security services division chooses a custodial provider. Use case one comes from private wealth management or from the markets team for tokenization or custody of NFTs. They take those requirements and they go back to the custodial services team and say, can you hold X, Y, and Z? And the custodial services team is like, I can't. And then the private wealth team starts their own NF, uh, RFP or the capital markets team starts their own RFP. And then the second provider gets brought in, right? And then, you know, we're going to do payments. And then the third provider comes in, right? And all of a sudden you have two or three different providers across one bank and we're replicating what we did 
you know, 50 years ago, 20 years ago, et cetera, right? And so the question we always ask is, you should start to think about base wallet infrastructure. Can it hold a range of tokens? Can it hold both public and permission tokens? Does it allow me to have a wide range of blockchain support, right? Does it allow me to have, you know, the ability to have the right security, um, you know, in, uh, rules in place, the right governance in place, the right connectivity to the outside technology provider? That's question one. Question number two is, as we think about the use cases that a bank can support, will it allow the right level of plugins? Does it have the right products that are sitting on top of the wallet capabilities that would allow me to do things like tokenization or operate in NFTs or do payments use cases uh, across the board? And if the answer is no, then you actually need to look at a new provider on the base case, right? And think about harmonization in a relatively new and unique way. Otherwise, we feel very strongly that you'll be replicating what's not been great about exist existing banking infrastructure today, right? And so, you know, that's a key question, right? And it requires a little bit of foresight, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, but it, it's a conversation that a lot of folks are, are really looking to have because it's been really difficult to harmonize existing infrastructure and to connect that infrastructure together. So the idea of connecting a new digital asset ecosystem and infrastructure to 50 different, you know, existing you know, components within the bank and then do that again and again and again is something that I think a lot of people don't want to do. I think you really hit the nail on the head there, particularly, particularly um, with, you know, how banks have approached their digital transformation and their, their projects in general, right? Um, I think the main problem there is, and, and as you mentioned, you know, they start off with one use case and then they add one on and then like they end up with two, three providers. This is how like the post-trade system at some banks, they have accumulated like 120 systems mm -hmm. in one, mm -hmm. at one bank. And that is like perhaps the minimum amount of post-trade system that a, a large bank can have. Can't imagine it being more than that. I, I just can't. But, um, but at the same time, uh, I, I feel like, and speaking to other people as well, I feel like that's really a, a people kind of issue because you know, I, I guess for you as a provider, you can see that the solution is so simple. Everybody just needs to come together, talk, and, and figure out, okay, this is the infrastructure that will benefit us all and we'll just do this work once and and that's it you know every every project that we want to work on will go through this platform for example i mean it's it sounds so simple but it's difficult to execute right it's all in mm -hmm. the execution so um <laughs> I, I maybe give me an example of how you see this panning out because as you mentioned maybe yes the future of um uh, the future of traditional assets will be on chain, you know, like in in the, in the next five to ten years. But for that to happen, a lot needs to change. And I think ma the majority of that work is in the mindsets of those that are at the banks right now. Perhaps you know, it's a it's really like, yep, I've got a couple of years left, uh, you know, before I retire here. Do I really want to take on this major project and you know risk mm -hmm. the the remaining of my career here or? You know, should I just leave this to the next generation? I mean, I'm perhaps I'm oversimplifying it, but then I've heard from other people, you know, they they have brought similar issues, you know, yeah. up in the past. So yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's definitely not an oversimplification, right? I mean, it, there's a lot of risk, right? I, I I like to say that at Fireblocks, we look for the anarchists within the bank, right? It's gonna sound crazy, but we look <laughs> for the people that have enough gravitas within the bank to pull things along and are willing to take risk. And then we commit ourselves to making them successful. 
it's pretty that's just the way we look at it and and not every bank is going to be or financial institution is going to be the right fit for fireblocks right uh that's part of our product market fit and the exercise we do on our side to basically uh, ensure success right we look and say is there someone like the romans of the world at bny right um and, and different folks uh, across the the globe that we will commit to putting resources behind to make successful and they're committed to making transformational change within the bank because they believe that's where the world is going and that's the future right and for them to be successful and for them to exist in a domain where there'll be more competitors and uh more globalization of things because blockchain exists that that makes sense for them right and so you know that is a little bit different right than maybe you know the the other way of looking at being a technology provider which is like selling to everyone and hope you win right like we 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 look at it a, a little bit differently on, on our side and and that 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 works for us now we believe when you know the likes of the bmy melons and others are successful people will look at those case studies and say what was different about how they went about offering these services and delivering it and that will be a way in which you know folks will work moving forward. It's a bet that we're making, I think, at Firebox, but I think it's the right bet. So, um, you know, for us, you know, we try to find the people that own the PL. We try to find the people that are the business owners, right? Uh, that will really be responsible for those broader investments. And then we try to make sure that the things on the base case are taken care of. Like we take care of like the DevOps. We have the right certifications. We're SOC. Uh, to type two certified, we got the uh, C4 certifications around security. We're the first company to have that certification in digital assets, right? It was started by digital asset providers and no one until Fireblocks did it, uh, actually went through that process of getting independently verified. We've done that, right? So we go through these processes to be able to answer the question to the DevOps teams and the cybersecurity risk teams. And then we say, how do we support the business, right? And if we can solve the base case, the custodial infrastructure with the right plugins and the right ecosystem connectivity, then we think we give a little less of a reason for people to believe there's as much risk, right? And, and piecing together all of this by yourself. And, and we then provide the right support mechanisms around it to, to, to them be successful. So, you know, uh, again, right? Uh, we've heard that before, like, why would I go through this huge transformation case when, you know, I can do what I'm doing. But, you know, I think, you know, we look at a world in which, you know, as products come online, right, there's real market share to be gained. And, you know, at least you may not have to have first mover advantage, but you definitely don't want to be the last to move. Right. And, and these type of this type of work definitely takes some time and, and takes some strategy and, and conceptual thinking. So, you know, it's a process that should be started. Okay, well, and I, I guess as a last question uh, before we close up here, uh, looking into this year since we're you know beginning pretty much the beginning of this uh, this year, um, what do you hope to see happen in this in this space? Or yeah, what look, what uh, are the uh, several uh, big themes that you see will you know play out? Yeah. Look, I think uh, I think we're going to see a lot more of traditional financial institutions bring real assets. So think about bonds, carbon credits. And these other things on chain, which I think will continue to validate blockchain technology. Like I think it's been validated, but it's been a lot. It's been in the innovation labs quite a bit, rather than being at the business level. I think you're going to start to see, you know, the business level concepts come to, to fruition, right? 
Banks have gone through their funding cycles. Budget has been allocated. Business cases have been worked on over the last two years. Stakeholders have been brought up over the last two years. So I think you're going to start to see some real projects uh, occurring in that space. For me, the thing that becomes really important is, is the right kind of regulatory framework, one, one that's not prohibitive to folks operating in digital assets. And if you look at things that are coming out from you know, places like Europe in which you know, there's two different types of digital assets, right? If, you're, if it's a real asset type, it has the same kind of capital treatment as it does today, like on a base case, but there's probably some things that need to be tweaked on like the crypto native side of things to allow people to really and financial institutions to really operate in that space and provide some levels of security that I think are, are well needed. So I think if there's a really strong regulatory framework that comes out over the next year, that would be a really good thing for the space. And I think if that incorporates crypto native players in a real way, right, like, you know, doesn't push them to the fringes, I think that will be a good thing, right? Because I think competition and, and you know, it is, is a good thing to spur innovation. And I think there are a lot of really strong crypto native companies that are doing great things in the space. So, you know, regulation that's a bit more inclusive, I think it would be something that would be exciting. And I think it will, it will push people to to adopt digital assets in, in a way that we've, we've hoped would happen for some, some time. So, you know, these real asset use cases, I think, are, are thing number one I'm excited about in this space. And I think the thing that I want to see is, you know, a strong regulatory framework coming out that, that allow banks and financial institutions and fintechs to really operate in digital assets. Great. Well, this has been a, a very insightful, Stephen. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. Much appreciated.